going back a little further, because I feel like I've learned a lot and, and still applying a lot of that learning in the past five years. But 10 years ago, I think I struggled from what I assume many people struggle from is just a lack of patience, uh, especially entrepreneurs who, who really want to have an impact. And sometimes the desire to have an impact gets in the way of you having an impact because you're rushing into things. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey there, leaders, and welcome back to another episode of Leaders of B2B. Super excited today and honored to have Michael Chang of Lumen5 on the show. Michael, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, um, I'm really excited. I've got a, I've got a, a handful of questions I'm just excited to ask today um, and dive into. But before we get into that, for anyone out there who doesn't know what Lumen Five is, can you give us that quick kind of ninety second overview of you know what you guys are and what you do as a company? Yeah, sure thing. So um, a short sentence is Lumen Five is a video creation platform, and we've helped hundreds of thousands of people who have never created videos before to be able to create great videos uh, for marketing and communications purposes. And really, um, our vision is that video is is everywhere. You know, you go on everywhere on the internet. So much of the information we consume these days is video, and we we really believe that video creation uh, is going to be a fundamental skill, not unlike what PowerPoint did for presentations one, once upon a time. And now the expectation is everyone makes presentations and it's so easy to do so. Um, and so we also believe that everyone should make video contents uh, for communication purposes. But um, there doesn't exist something like PowerPoint in the world of video. And that's what we want to create to make it so easy that anyone can do it. Nice. I love that. That is incredible. And so I want to now dive a bit into the backstory. And uh, a point in the journey that I want to go back to is, uh, is a witty cookie. Um, because I actually own a company called Lead Cookie, so we are mutually bonded over cookie <laughs> company names. <laughs> so, um, and uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, and, but what I think also is interesting is if I were call that's like a digital agency um, that you were running, and then basically you kind of got into this tech startup space. And I'm curious what that journey looked like for you to go from, you know, being an agency owner to essentially actually starting to build and scale startups. Yeah, I, I think as with um, as with so many people who get into the B two B world, agency is such a natural starting point. It's how do you? It's your entry point to working with businesses. Uh, Witty Cookie for me was was quite a while ago. I think perhaps over a decade ago. Um, and at that time, uh, you know, my my skills and experience were very different. And um, the the lowest hanging fruit that I, I felt like I could get into the B two B world was to trade. Um, my time one-to-one -one for the value generated. And it's it's uh, invoicing my personal hours, building websites, and then uh, over time scaling Witty Cookie, which was a web design, web development agency, um, was, was to build the team so that we can sustain more projects. And as with many people who start their career or are currently in the agency world, will quickly see that scaling can become very difficult if every project requires a set amount of labor hours to produce. Um, and I certainly really wanted to expand globally, but it was there was such constraints with scaling 
uh, every additional project, additional customers that we took on was more um, was more uh, labor hours, which is not just the the hours it takes to deliver on the project, but the the time it takes to find the people, to train the people, and then the inconsistency of projects um, flow. You've got uh, the Christmas months where there's no projects. Well, what do you do with your team and all the human resource you've built up? And so that inconsistency drew me initially to this fascinating world of SaaS and software as a service, the consistency and revenue, the scalability and being able to deploy a solution to customers around the world without additional costs um, per customer. So uh, a lot of witty cookie for me was building all of the skills um, in, in the world of B2B, uh, from sales and marketing and, and customer relationships and branding, uh, without the technology piece, which, which was actually great. I was really thankful for that opportunity to have a focused experience to learn parts of the business because I would then go on to learn that product and technology is is a massively complex world in and of itself. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's, I think, such a common path, for, I think, to see marketers eventually go entrepreneur in that sense or coming out of the agency where you kind of learn but you realize the limitations of it and you start looking for kind of what is something that can actually scale and i think it takes a lot of people a while to realize like oh this this can only go so far with an agency which it can be a great business but it, there is i think inherent limitations there or it becomes very difficult but i'm curious you know what was so like the next venture that i'm at least what i'm seeing on your linkedin is uh, snippily, and what was that transition like from agency to starting to get into this kind of tech company world? Yeah, uh, I think um, entrepreneurs LinkedIn can be confusing because sometimes you see these huge gaps. Um, but really, really, what those gaps are, are are a series of failed attempts at building startups that don't pan out, and so it's not worth writing about. Um, and I can think of a handful, at least two companies uh, that I worked on between Witty Cookie and and Snipply and a lot of learnings along the way. Um, and uh, around that time, you know, m m maybe a better story to tell is while at Witty Cookie, I didn't, I didn't walk away from the agency life completely. I had attempted to transition the Witty, uh, transition Witty Cookie in two ways um, into a software as a service business model. So one, we really pursued a monthly pricing model at Witty Cookie. So instead of charging clients for a set amount, um, we charged a monthly rate exactly as you would price a SaaS product, but we would front all of the costs for building the website uh, and they would subscribe to keep the website. And that was kind of my uh, my my very early attempt, and at that time, SaaS pricing model, you know, 10, 12 years ago, wasn't as popular. So it was innovative enough that people were were buying into this low upfront cost. Um, the the challenge then became. It was very popular because you can effectively get a website for 20 bucks uh, and, and what you pay for is over the years you're subscribed to it. Uh, but that still had a lot of uh, um, delivery issues <laughs> when when we can when we promise websites for 20 bucks and, and we've got hundreds of people signing up uh, delivering on that was very difficult. So the next step in the world of witty cookie was reinvesting some of our resources to try and build core technology and then at time um, and, and you'll see a pattern where I've always been really fascinated with building simple technologies. And at that time, I was trying to build something that would allow our clients to build their own website. Uh, and this was around a time where Wix and Squarespace didn't quite take off in, in the way that uh, it exists today. And so we we really tried to build this, this automated AI, ML-generated solution that allows us to really 
pump out these websites that are customized and personalized. Uh, but the technology side was just so complex. It is it is not easy to create an automated solution for web building. Um, and even to this day, I think Wix and Squarespace still rely heavily on templates. And it's not so much that they um, uh, is an automated personalized solution or anything like that. Uh, and then, you know, that, that, that was great experience for, for getting into technology. And then me realizing not every industry is primed for, um, automated technology solutions. Uh, and then Snipply was, was actually, uh, um, you know, Snipply allows you to create links and add call to action to those links so that as you share those links, when people click on it, they can see your branding and your marketing message. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's a remarkably simple technology, uh, if you think about it. And um, we used a, a, a very simple implementation of iframes for our minimum viable products. Uh, and it was really helpful for me because we were able to get a prototype off the ground uh, in a matter of days to test the concept. And I remember posting it on um, one of the very early versions of Snipply on, on Reddit and on forums and got a lot of early feedback. So the simplicity of the technology actually really helped uh, me enter the tech space. And, and with that experience, I was able to learn how to manage products and build technology and then would go on to build much more complex technologies. That's incredible. Um, yeah. And I love that. And, and whenever you say that and I'm kind of aware of what Snipply is, I'm like, oh, that's, I realize that's how the technology works. That's so simple. Uh, but it, it, but I imagine like it's, it, I guess for people, the users, like I remember when I saw that, I was like, that's really cool. But I didn't know, I had no idea how it was actually being built. So it makes sense as like a, like a first step into that. Um, and, and so I guess what happened with Snipply or what has kind of that journey been like and maybe the transition then into to Lumen 5? Yeah, I, I couldn't have asked for a, a better journey, actually. It, it was one of my first serious attempts into the world of tech. Um, it was one of my first times working with my co-founders, and it's the same co-founders that I built Lumen 5 with, um, and they're both very technical. So it was the first time working with uh, technical co-founders to really build a tech company from startup. And and it was great. We saw a lot of growth uh, uh, in, in kind of the first few years. And while the technology was simple at the beginning, became much more complex later on as we included um, uh, stability, efficiency, and being able to load links quickly. I still remember a fun story there where I think Justin Bieber had tweeted a Snipply link and it just crashed everything <laughs> and, 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 and because there's so much traffic uh, and we didn't expect it. You know, we, we primarily serve B2B purposes. We don't expect a, a celebrity like Bieber to share a Snipply link. Um, and that was a lesson in infrastructure and, and you know, building redundancy and backups and, you know, a lot of great learnings there. And then another chapter of Snipply's kind of life cycle was this uh, entrance into the enterprise world. Uh, we, we primarily in the early days served marketers, prosumers, freelancers, and maybe small businesses, but over time started to see some enterprise interest as they were also looking for a, um, a more serious approach to link management. Um, and, and that was also at a time where link sharing was really the strategy to pursue. And I don't think it's, uh, it is anymore. And that eventually became one of the reasons why we didn't continue working on uh, Snipply. And I think not continuing to work on Snipply is a negative way of putting it. It did get acquired, so we had an exit. I guess what I mean to say is we chose to sell the business as opposed to keep growing the business uh, because we became fascinated at this idea that link sharing might not be the future of the internet. And when we got the hunch that perhaps link sharing isn't the future of the internet, um, we went and seeked out acquisition opportunities and sold the company. And so, uh, you know, and that's what I mean by I couldn't have asked for 
or a better journey from my first experience building a tech company with tech co-founders to have a successful exit and acquisition and all of the learnings along the way that set us up for success with our next company after that. Uh, very grateful for the experience there. Nice. That's incredible. Yeah, I guess then maybe like let's walk us through Lumen5. I guess you're coming out of that exit. Was this happening? Do you take a break between companies? Or are you just kind of immediately jumping from one to the other? Do you, do you bring the t- some of the team with you? What does that transition look like? Uh, every day I wish I took a break. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of a kind of a funny thing, I think, with, um, you know, with founders, especially vacation days are not as common. And so the break you get are every five years when there's an exit or some sort of business failure. That's when you take a chunk. That's what I observe anyways. People take a year off and then start their next business. Um, I didn't do that and have regretted it for uh, four and a half years. Um, still look forward to that break one day. But it, it was uh, it was a bit of an overlap, and I think it, it happened because while we were building Sniply, we became fascinated with this vision of the future of the internet. Um, and around that time was when video was really starting to take off. I wouldn't say it has fully taken off, but you, we started to see smartphones being powerful enough to load videos. We started to see um, data plans being affordable enough that people can actually watch video. Because if you recall, in the early days, it doesn't matter if your phone can load video, nobody has the data plans to afford it. And then we saw really social media was one of the earliest signals. Uh, As you scroll through the newsfeed, various things started to change. And then we started to see new visual only social platforms. Uh, Nowadays, you see them everywhere, Snapchat, TikTok. Talk or, or Instagram stories are heavily video oriented and heavily video influenced. And so the, the, there was a bit of an overlap where towards the end of the our involvement in Sniply, we started to really brainstorm on, well, what is this? Um, if the future of the internet is video, how do we help people speak this native language of the web if nobody knows how to create video? What we saw was really video editing through the eyes of most people are Adobe Premiere and After Effects and its timelines and layers. And it was just, there's no chance that people would just figure that out uh, unless they have a professional training or years of experience. Um, and so we we also drew inspiration and looked at platforms like PowerPoints or Canva that have made graphic design and presentation creation so easy through a simple user experience. Um, and we applied that similar philosophy. How do we make this drag and drop uh, simple slide-by-slide experience to video creation? Uh, and then made Lumen5. And um, the, the difference, I think, is with Sniply, as I mentioned earlier, the minimum viable product, we were able to get a working product out there in the market in in days after we had the concepts. Uh, And that was the beauty of the simplicity of technology. Lumen 5 took perhaps closer to six months before we were able to get any kind of prototype or minimum viable product out there for feedback. So it was fundamentally just much more complicated, um, which which sets a much stronger foundation for scaling and, and barriers to entry, but it also uh, required that time. And so it's not that I switched immediately from a post-Sniply straight into full operation. It was six months of R&D on Lumen5 and building the first minimum viable product. So uh, while it wasn't a break, so to say, it was a shift in my day-to-day for sure. There was no marketing to be done because we weren't um, public with the product yet. Uh, So that transition period was very much just focused on designing and building the products for eventual testing. Incredible. And then did you guys, um, were you bootstrapping this with funds from your previous acquisition? Were you guys just kind of 
um, hustling on this or did you guys raise capital or what was that kind of approach with that? Yeah. So the, I get this question all the time and I think, uh, so I, I, I don't really raise money. Um, I've had, I've had some experience raising money in some of the companies in between Woody Cookie and Snipply, but for Snipply and Lumen5, they're both bootstrapped. Um, and it's not because I, I'm anti fundraising or anything like that, which is a common misconception. Um, I've always just believed that you raise money when you need money. And and that's the biggest separation, I think, between the B2C world and the B2B world is when you're building a B2C company, it is really hard to monetize in the early days. Uh, you need a certain kind of critical mass and scale before you can start to generate meaningful revenues. Some companies never do, um, for example, like Instagram or, or many of these B2C companies that don't even think about a sustainable revenue model because the goal is to sell into a company with an existing working revenue model. And so with B2B founders, I think that's a common uh, misconception that fundraising is required for a startup to be able to grow and scale. And I've, that's never been my experience experience, at least in the, for me, I, I identify most of our products are in this realm of B2B, um, SMB, freemium, targeting small businesses, at least in the early stages. And that allows us to generate early revenues, 20, 30, $50 a month for access to our software. And I'm sure that's different if you're building a, a I mean, there's so many kinds of B2B companies out there. If it requires heavy R&D, years of research to be able to deploy or heavy enterprise, and you really need to build a lot out before you can sell. Uh, but for us, we've been, we've been all, always been able to sell uh, quite early, um, sell the product, I mean, not the company. Uh, and, and being able to sell the product means that we can scale off of customer revenues as opposed to depending on financing and fundraising. So uh, following the philosophy of we would only raise money if we need it, we've always had all the resources we needed from customer revenue and just scaling from um, growing our customer base. So we've never had to fundraise. So both, both of those companies, Snipply and Limit5, have been bootstrapped for that reason. Nice. That's incredible. I uh, just love hearing that kind of journey and approach. And that's just a good, I think, mindset to it. I think, yeah, there's a lot of debate, but it's like, ah, like, you know, if you're going to do some really crazy AI platform and like you need to raise capital, then like, cool. But if like, if you don't, then like, you don't like it. It's, and I think that's just such a good way to look at it. Or if someone hits a growth inflection point and they need it to get to that next level or something. But um, I love that kind of frame on like, yeah, only raise it if you need it kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So another thing I want to, I want to hit on here is I want to also maybe understand a bit more, I guess, and maybe how you guys approach just branding and like your creative and everything. Cause that's always something I actually really enjoyed from you guys. And the other story I have to share is uh, we recently redesigned our lead cookie website and uh, we gave them Lumen5 and Design Pickle as references <laughs> for what we were looking for uh, to our web designer. And so uh, really a big fan of your guys just kind of design and branding. And I'm curious, you know, do you do you kind of oversee that from your web design background? Do you have marketers now that oversee that for you or how, how do you approach that? Uh, clearly, we have a similar taste because I think I also reference Design Pickle. So there's All probably right, something that, there. That's good uh, to know. I, <laughs> No, I, I like what they do too. Um, I, I I think there's a, a couple angles to it. So um, I uh, another common misconception, I guess you could say, a lot of people assume I went through business school or studied marketing because so much of what I do is in the marketing world. Um, but my educational background is in design and it's in digital media. And uh, through school is where I learned web design and um, UI, UX, and a lot of that uh, general knowledge. And what I found was that it... it, it uh, 
design school or design graduation uh, applies so nicely in the world of marketing where it is this marriage between business and, and arts. And, um, and so a lot of what I do is influenced by my education as well. And when it comes to web design, undoubtedly branding and, and all of the work that I did at Witty Cookie does influence much of what we do. Uh, and it's, it's twofold in that sense. There's number one, I have a personal um, uh, kind of joy just from looking at good brands and I, I I like to I like to think that the the communication of a brand is more than just what you say it's also how you come across how you appear how you feel so I put a lot of emphasis on voice and tone as well um, and I, I would also say that it's 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 also true that we have marketers that look after that and the marketing team um, but I think the important thing is I've, I've really tried to hire people who care about those things as well and I think that's really important um, and that's something that I look for as we built the marketing team and we continue to build the marketing team. There's a number of marketing hires that we're, we're investing in now. Um, we've got a good stable product. So now it's, we want to scale out the marketing and then by extension, the marketing team. Um, and I do plan to continue to hire with that emphasis of how, how do how do their websites or emails come across? Like how do their um, uh, email signatures come across? And that attention to detail and design, I think is really important for uh, for a marketing team. So I love that. And I'd like to dive maybe a little bit deeper into just kind of hiring for marketing. This is totally personal here because I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm slowly starting to build out a marketing team for the first time uh, as I'm, my companies are hitting that scale. And um, yeah, maybe what other criteria do you look for and hiring marketing. And I think also, I guess the way I always kind of think about marketing or as I'm looking at it is like, you've got kind of a marketing manager, someone who you can kind of just tell and can like execute a lot of tasks and then kind of like a director, someone strategy wise, um, who can actually kind of guide those tasks. But I'm curious, how do you maybe think about hiring, you know, marketing team members or what do you look for in that? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And it's something that I think about a lot, especially these days as we're doing a lot of marketing hires. I view marketing fundamentally as as uh, the spectrum. And this isn't my own original analogy. I learned this from a mentor. But in the world of marketing, there's logic and magic on, on extreme ends. And on the logic end, which is a very important of modern day marketing, is the data-driven marketing. It's uh, the spreadsheets, being able to analyze every step of the funnel, conversion rates. And that uh, is is needs to be anchored by the the magic side of the spectrum and the magic side of the spectrum are things that data doesn't tell you it's the how do you make your customers feel how does your brand come across what kind of relationship does your brand build with its customer base and and I would also say that in the work that I do which is primarily technology self-serve experience they don't really get a, a salesperson or um, or representative that gives them that human connection, which means the brand is the connection that the customer has with the company. And so that, that magic component is especially important when there's no human touch. So first and foremost, what I look for is, is less so the, um, the hierarchy of the marketing team, but more of the balance and composition of that logic and magic. And you want to really, you want a good balance. Logic absent magic is endless optimizations and and really pure funnel approach uh, and then a pure magic is is kind of ungrounded and not accountable and you've got crazy marketing campaigns um, you're, you're <laughs> buying out venues for fireworks uh, and, and then it's like what's the what's the ROI 
And so I think the composition is is really important. And then from that, you start to piece together that really you want a, whether the marketing manager or the marketing director or head of marketing should be balanced uh, so that they can manage both of these types of individuals to be able to create a, a well-rounded team where the, the logic grounds the magic and then there's a kind of a vice versa going on. And what I've experienced at times is when that balance is off, it influences the, the kind of marketing projects and initiatives that you would pursue. If if the team is too far in the logic end, uh, you end up with, with projects that are more targeted at revenue or engagement or funnel optimizations. If it's too far on the magic side, you get these crazy creative campaigns, uh, but nobody can really tell you what the return on investment for those uh, initiatives are. And so that the, the, that's the mental model that I approach when I think about marketing teams. I love that magic versus logic like that. just... This just looks like a <laughs> a great like business lessons poster, and you got like a wizard or something fighting a mathematician. Um, but like, <laughs> that's right. that is, it's I love that though because that is a super great way to think about it, um, and just really fascinating way to kind of look at marketing. I'm curious what other things when you're making hires, um, even beyond just marketing, what are other things that you look for, or what does your hiring process look like? Yeah, so um, we have a couple things that we look for, and I think that's that's kind of expressed through our hiring process. So we've got um, one of the first rounds is, is what we call a skills test. And it's all about the, the work to be done, the job itself. Um, we're looking for how they think about that field, whether it's customer support or sales or marketing or, or engineering. How do they think about it? How do we, um, sometimes there would be an assignment of some sort to, to really test that they know the work to be done. Then there's uh, more of a, um, characteristics-based interview, which is more around understanding how do they see career and life and balance and, and what are they trying to do? Why do they do what they do? And we have a whole interview dedicated to that because I think that's so important. I think it, uh, a common misconception for startups is you join and it's fun and it's 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 foosball and, and, and beer pong. But I think for those of us who have built startups know that it's incredibly difficult and it's um, it's such a tough journey that you have to, you're almost doing people, a, a potential candidates and applicants a disservice if you don't inform them just how grueling the experience is. Uh, and so that's something that we care very much about too, is that they have to be doing it for the right reasons. Otherwise, burnouts, mental health, wellness, they all become um, very commonplace in the startup world where everything is moving so rapidly. Uh, and so the, the the culture component is really finding people who are driven by impacts. They have the bandwidth and capacity to focus on building their career at that time. They have uh, adequate curiosity to be able to do what needs to be done because a lot of times in a, in a startup, you you might apply to be a marketing manager and then by the week's end you're doing sales and you're doing finance and, and you're doing all sorts of crazy things you're putting on 10 hats at a time and there's a certain type of individual who thrives on that uh, and that's not everyone so I, that from what i've seen some people call it skill and will and you know similar to the logic magic mental model uh, skill and will is do they have the skill to do the work and then do they have the will to do the work Really what you want is to find people both with the skill and will, and that is what some would consider to be the right seat, a uh, right person in the right seat. Nice. I love that. So we've got the work test and then kind of that characteristic test. Is there any other kind of pieces of the hiring process that you guys go through? Do you have multiple different people interview them or any other kind of pieces of that? 
usually there are different people uh, and we, we will have a culture fit stage that's more specific to well what is it like working with this person um, it is also an opportunity to meet um, members of the team that they would work with as well so our skill and I guess you could say skill and will interviews are, are more conducted by management and leadership type individuals. And then the culture fit interview is uh, with the teams that they would work with to ensure that this is uh, there's a personality fit beyond skill and will, that there's a match there. So um, those three rounds are, are a majority of, of our hiring process. And sometimes, depending on the role, we'll have um, special stages or special assignments. Uh, for example, with engineering, there's a coding challenge and there's a bit of adaptability in there um, but mostly yeah it's a skill will and then is there a personality fit nice i love that that's that's incredible and i'm curious also now to jump into kind of your role as ceo and how has that evolved and maybe what does it look like today um, like well, what is your time focused on at this stage i know in the early stage it's everything but as you've grown you've got a sizable team now um, you know what does your typical day-to-day -day look like it's certainly changed a lot, and I think it continues to change. So if you ask me this, you know, two months later, my day to day is probably going to change a lot as well. In the early days, for sure, as an early stage B two B founder, it's full funnel. It's all the way from strategy, all the way to I, I am building the website and I'm designing the logo and and I'm on Twitter and I'm answering every support ticket. And I think the way to see it is you start off with this full funnel, and then over time you slowly move up, and it's more so around ensuring that the the individual contributors doing doing the work for example let's say you hire a customer support to start answering support tickets it's um, spending the time to ensure that they understand the voice and tone who what our priorities are what our values are when do we give a refund when don't we give a refund how do we help people um, do we simply answer the questions and point them in the right direction or do we go above and beyond and actually do their work for them and send them a complete video. Those kinds of things are uh, in the early days are really important for setting the tone. And then that starts to scale. And where I would say I'm at today is a lot of cross-team alignments is, is that there's strategy that's developed and, and ideas and vision and mission that I would have. Uh, and it, it is a, a full-time overtime job to make sure that that is communicated to the various teams. And that's um, primarily in our case it's ensuring that product and engineering is building a roadmap that that is aligned with the company vision it is ensuring that sales and marketing are promoting and selling and positioning the product in a way that it matches what we're actually building so that when customers appear they see the branding they set a, a certain expectation of the product they try the product all of that is a succinct experience and we actually deliver on the promises that we make um, and it's not always easy sometimes that falls out of sync from quarter to quarter uh, something that I certainly experienced uh, with the pandemic where uh, a lot of that alignment and communication was done in person. It was much easier to align people when they were sitting next to each other. And so the day-to-day -day nowadays practically is a lot of Zoom calls. It's a lot of um, small team meetings, all hands meetings. It's a lot of repetition too. Uh, do uh, as a, there's an internal joke where the CEO is really the the, the chief broken record officer, and and it's having a strategy and it's repeating it day in day out and acknowledging that all of our individual contributors have their own focus areas, things that they're thinking about. If you're an account executive, you're really thinking about 
your clientele and your customer base that you're working with and what you need to deliver for them. And it's really helpful to have a, a leadership team or a leadership figure that can just repeat our priorities and what we care about, uh, and which then influences how each individual prioritizes their time. So it's a lot of communication. It's very communication heavy. And within that breaks down into internal communications, which I would say is 80, 90% of my time. Um, but I also keep 10, 20% of my time for external communications to have conversations like these, sometimes to promote Lumen5 and represent Lumen5 at events and podcasts, and sometimes just to give back, um, to, to go to universities and share what I know and what I've learned. So that's kind of how my day-to-day -day breaks down. Nice. That's awesome. And one of the questions I want to dive into a, a bit on that as well, um, you mentioned again, alignment is a big part of it. And I'm curious what maybe like, are there any tools or frameworks or ways that you go about trying to keep everyone aligned? Because uh, I, I find that that is an interesting challenge. I think that you start to realize as you grow a team is you're like, wow, like if I don't stay on top of this, like these people will just go in totally different directions. And like, it, you, but it's all like you're having all the individual conversations. So you know what's up, but you have to really kind of get that communicated to everybody. And so I'm curious, what, what, what kind of tools or frameworks beyond just kind of conversations do you have to align people? Yeah, tons of them that I've tried. Some have worked, some haven't worked. I, what I would caution is it really comes down to experimentation. I've seen that every business is different. So I'll share what I use, but don't don't take that as it's going to map one-to-one -to, -one to your business. Um, in the recent past, and I would say this year in particular, I've had some success using the EOS framework, stands for Entrepreneurial Operating System. Uh, and there's a book by Gino Wickman called Traction that covers that framework. And I like it for its simplicity. I think you'll, you'll probably find a pattern, uh, like I believe that startups are small and need to be nimble, so simple frameworks are really attractive for me. And the EOS framework is nice. Uh, it's a series of questions. It asks you things around mission, vision, 10-year um, goal, three-year picture, one-year plan, what does it look like? Uh, and that answering all those questions in a kind of a questionnaire format uh, allowed us to unify the team around uh, mission, vision, our unique value proposition, and, and really the high-level concepts. Uh, and then most importantly, the exercise that I found most helpful was separating it from the 10-year, three-year, and one-year. I've found at times that the confusion between what we want to do in 10 years, three years, and one year create a lot of the misalignment within the team. And the, the, the difficult thing is you know, there's there's no such thing as a bad idea if there's a sufficiently long timeline. And sometimes we often talk about AI, one-click video creation would be such a great, great experience. You click a button, you get this perfect video. But when I talk about those things, um, I don't mean for it to be a, a something we work on now and complete in a year. It's more like it, that's a 10-year goal and so much needs to happen. And so separating out these the, the company vision, I guess you could say, um, one very powerful piece of alignment I found is that most companies have a company vision, but it's too long-term that um, for the average team member, they can't really make the connection between this massive 10-year vision to what they need to work on now. Um, and so the, the framework kind of forces you to articulate your 10-year vision, your three-year vision, and your one-year vision. Um, and I would say having a very compelling one-year vision is something that many teams actually miss. And, and it's, of course, the one-year vision has to roll up to the three-year, has to roll up to the 10-year. So that framework has, has worked out really well. And then within that, that book and framework also has what they call the people analyzer. And it's, it's a way to assess your, your A players and B players and so forth. So there, there's uh, more than just 
the company direction within that framework. There is also human resources and conflict management. Um, uh, so that is one framework that that has that I I would recommend anyone to at least explore. The book is a light read, and it might work for you. Nice, I love that. I'm a big fan. I've got the VTOs for. Both oh, companies great. I've gotten everything as well. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal book and it, it helps a ton. I remember the first time I actually did that to my team, they were all like, oh, so that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> like, it's just like no one had it. It was like the vision was up here and everyone else is just like working. And it's yeah. like, oh, everyone gets it now. Yeah, that's yeah, right. So it's a phenomenal, phenomenal read. And, and while we're on the topic, I'm, I'm, if you've read it, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the People Analyzer too. Um, and I, I, I love that they've simplified it. There's so many different ways to assess talent. Um, and the, the framework breaks it down to simply three concepts, I would say, is do they get it? Do they want it? And can they do it? Or in the book, they describe it as capacity. And really, I, I recommend all early stage founders to, to think about every interview that they go into, every individual on their team really go through those three criteria. Do they get it? So do they, how aligned are they? How much do they actually understand your vision, your mission? Do they get what you're trying to accomplish? And then do they want it? And that's the one thing that's, um, you can't really, you know, if they don't want it, they don't want it. And it doesn't matter if they get it. It doesn't matter if they can do it. And if you find someone who gets it and wants it, then the last thing you need is, do they have the skill? Can they do it? Do they have the time? Do they have the patience? And I, I love that it's distilled uh, hiring, which is such a complicated process, into really just three checkboxes. And I, I recommend it for anyone who's who's hiring to think in that simple framework. Yeah, I love that uh, simplicity. It's, it's super helpful, especially on decisions like that. It's like you've got all the other... And, and it, like, basically, that's kind of like the simplified version of what you described for a lot of the other hiring processes. And those are all just kind of other pieces that give you information to really make an educated decision on those three checkboxes. So awesome. Well, as we're getting toward kind of time here and wrapping up, one of the questions I always like to ask is, you know, if you could go back say five or 10 years in your entrepreneurial journey, what advice would you give your younger self? Yeah. One of the, you know, going back a little further, because I feel like I've learned a lot and, and still applying a lot of that learning in the past five years. But 10 years ago, I think I struggled from what I assume many people struggle from is just a lack of patience, uh, especially entrepreneurs who, who really want to have an impact. And sometimes the desire to have an impact gets in the way of you having an impact because you're rushing into things. And around the time when I started Witty Cookie and maybe just a bit before that, I, I very much just started lots of businesses and tested lots of ideas and, and really felt like if I could start 10 businesses, it'll accelerate the, the chances of me finding the one that works out. And what I, what I realized and what I learned, and these are learnings that I still carry with me today, is if I had just focused on any one of those 10 businesses, it would have probably been successful. And you know, it's, it's something that is more than just how many businesses you start. It's also within a business, how many ideas do you pursue? Uh, video creation is a good example at, at Lumen5. There's so many different directions we can take the company, and we could easily pursue 10 different product solutions to solving the same problem. But over the years, the, the advice I would give myself is that that discipline and that patience and that focus on honing one thing, whether it's working on one project, working with um, a, a handful of customers, a subset of the the, the overall market, whatever it is, whatever focus means to you. And focus is really the, the, the way through which I've been able to start seeing results. Uh, and I learned a lot of this from my co-founders who, who are some of the most focused and disciplined people that I've met in my life. And it's, it's all about 
day after day, minute after minute, hour after hour, focusing and making a little bit of progress on this one thing over an extended period of time. And one of my favorite quotes is the, the average overnight success takes about seven years. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a great quote because I think if you look around to many of these companies that feel like overnight success because suddenly you see them everywhere. When you dig into the background, you'll see that many of these companies have operated for six, seven, 12, 14 years. And um, that's what I believe in. That's the advice I would give myself. It's that patience, discipline, and focus. I love that. And I, I can completely relate. Uh, when I actually started my first company that actually like went anywhere, I had an, hired an advisor, it was Alex McClafferty, who co-founded WP Curve, and he told me, so assume that this is going to succeed. And like, and like, why are you doing this? And that was just like such a profound question to like assume success. And it's just like, <laughs> and then what it made me realize like later after I actually like succeeded with this company and like built something was like, wow, like all of those ideas that I had, I had a lot of great ideas. Like there are some really good ones back there, but it would be like 30 days and I'm like, I don't have a customer kill it. Like, you know, like it's <laughs> bail. And like, you know, and then like, it's just like the wrong ideas, like you assume. And, and it's just like, yeah, super impatient, jumping around to things all the time, killing projects. And really like, there's just so many great things in there, but I was just super impatient and expected yeah. results like the next day kind of thing. So it's, it's a super valuable lesson there. And I love that story. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, Michael, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here. This is absolutely amazing. Um, again, big fan of what you guys are doing. Um, and so for anyone that wants to go try out Lumen5 online, see what you guys are doing, uh, what's the best place to go to find you guys online? Yeah, I've, I've always been a big um, uh, proponent and supporter of freemium models. And, and what that means is Lumen5 is free to create videos. And we have some premium features that you can upgrade for, but mostly you can create videos for free. Uh, and you can just pop in an email and sign up for an account at lumen5.com and it, it drops you straight into the video creator and you can start creating videos for your businesses for marketing communications, put it up on Facebook, social media, whatever it is. Uh, that's the easiest way. I'm also open to connecting as well. If you just search Michael Chang, Lumen5, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, I'm sure I'll pop up. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to come on here, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jake. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. Mm -hmm.